You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 136. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You've reached another Local Maximum. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Uh, we've got another solo show today, so you're just going to have me talking for a while. Uh, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk a little bit more about election forecasts and some of the craziness around, you know, why the numbers go up and down and why some of these probabilities shouldn't. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it in a minute. And I'm going to talk about some of the history of technology a little bit, the operating systems, 25th anniversary of Windows 95. I know that might sound, well, it, it's interesting. So uh, hang on tight. Uh, we'll get to that. We got a pretty cool sponsor for today. It's the Podcast Discovery Show, which is a podcast that helps you discover other podcasts. Very meta, very meta podcast. I think it's a great idea. It's the Podcast Discovery Show, so I'll talk about it a little later. First, I wanted to update you on the election predictions, and not, not my election prediction. I'm not going to try to predict the election today, but um, I want to talk about what we've been saying about probability in this case. So if you go all the way back on the local maximum to episode 33, we saw that kind of Twitter fight between Nassim Taleb and Nate Silver about Nate Silver's election predictions. And his, uh, and, and I think the, um, the issue with his election predictions or, or a lot of the election predictions that are out there is the variance over time. So, you know, one day it'll be 70% so-and-so wins, the next day it'll be 60%, then up to 80%, then down to 50%. And all that variance is uh, sort of a problem. With it, it sort of calls into question the uh, accuracy of the prediction itself. Now, I think that uh, Nate Silver's final prediction for the election of 2016 was that Hillary Clinton has a 70% chance of winning and Donald Trump has a 30% chance. Uh, that in and of itself is actually not so bad uh, because, you know, 30% things happen all the time. Um, I do think it is bad, the ones that said 92%, but I'll get into that in a minute. So uh, now we're talking about the election predictions for the election of 2020. And this was spurred by a tweet from David Salazar, who was linking to Nassim Taleb's book in chapter 12 on elections and on essentially forecasts of events, you know, uh, binary events, yes or no, um, over time. So it's sort of a, it's, uh, it's, it's a time series. Um, and you kind of update your prediction every day. I'm not going to get into the technical details of that um, because they're kind of very complicated. Uh, maybe I'll get into a few of the technical details. But I just want to tell you why making predictions far away from 50% are tough and are probably not right when the election is this far out. So there is a really good graphic that he has where it's like, here's what the actual predictions look like, and the graph is going up and down and up and down, and then here's what it should look like, where it's kind of, you know, it's going up and down a little bit, but it's very close to 50% either way, Republican or Democrat, and then it sort of flips uh, at the end, uh, you know, a few days before the election, it should, you can make a, a bolder prediction. So we'll talk about why that is. Um, so one way to think about this is you can't, you know, uh, you can't predict events that occur between now and the election. You know, how many events have already occurred 
in the year 2020 that were completely unanticipated to you or a lot of people. Uh, this year probably has more than most. So, you know, a, a lot of the events over the next two months are also going to be completely unanticipated. So, and they could move things in either direction, which makes it really hard, again, to, uh, to predict. Uh, in terms of probability theory, often when we hear, oh, there's a 70% chance Biden is going to win, we're thinking that there's kind of a time warp between now and the election, and then a weighted die of 70% is going to be thrown, and then, boom, it's going to collapse the, the, the wave function, it's going to collapse the probability, and there's a 70% chance it's going to go to Biden, and there's a 30% chance it's going to go to Trump uh, if we time warp from now to the election. But actually, actually, there are a lot of steps between now and the election, and what you can really do is you can base today's probability on tomorrow's probability. So let me give you an example. This is sort of, uh, you, you, you got to think about this. You got to do a little thought experiment. Uh, let's suppose I ask you, what is the probability forecast going to be tomorrow? That's a really interesting question because now you're thinking about the, you're thinking probabilistically about what probability I'm going to forecast tomorrow. So let, let's, let's say this is what I say. Let's say, hmm, well, there's a one-third chance I'm going to say Biden is 60%, and there's a one-third chance I'm going to say Biden is 55% chance, and there's another one-third chance that it's going to be 50-50. So now you could use that to come out with today's prediction. So you average all of that together, and you average 60, 55, and 50. They're all equal, like, equally likely. And you average them together, and that makes today's forecast 55%. And then you wait for tomorrow, and you see what happens. So that means that if you're going to make an extreme pred prediction, say 90% on one candidate today, that means the probability that it'll be higher tomorrow has to balance out the probability that it's going to be lower tomorrow. And that gets tougher to do the higher and higher you go to 100% and the lower and lower you go to 0%. Because even if you think there's a small chance something could happen tomorrow that push it, let's say you're at 90, and I say, well, is, could something happen tomorrow? Is, is there a you know, non-zero chance that something happens tomorrow that pushes your prediction down to 70? And you say, sure, sure, something could happen tomorrow, push my prediction down to 70. Then you need kind of a, a counterbalancing probability, say a possibility it's going to go up to 95%. Uh, that sort of balances the probability that goes down to 70%, all else being equal. And going up to 95 has to be, that's only a 5% difference, but going from 90 to 70 is a 20% difference. So the chance that it clicks up to 95 and stays there is going to have to be way more likely. It's going to be four times as likely to balance it out. So that means that kind of a 90% prediction is should be really hard to make uh, this far out because you have to, um, you have to, um, then you have to, uh, you know, include the possibility that it could go up and it could go down in equal amounts and not equal amounts, but, you know, uh, weighted equally. And it's, um, it's, it's, you're too close to a hundred percent. There's not too much room to go up. And so then you have an argument, well, if, if 90% is unlikely, that means that, 85% is unlikely because from 85, I'm not going to go to 90 because I don't want to say, I just said I don't want to say 90 this far out. And so if 85 is no good, then 80 is no good and so on and so forth. So with each step of the argument, you go down 80, 75, 70, uh, the, 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 each step of the argument is getting weaker and weaker because at each step you make in that chain, um, 
you end up with more room to go up, and um, then you say, okay, well, uh, now we have um, now we have uh, more probability available on the upside to balance the possibility on the downside, and so that means that um, that means that you know probabilities closer to fifty percent are uh, are more okay, and so this sort of pr- pushes the prediction towards fifty percent. The people who are a hundred percent or at high end, you want to go down. The people who are low end, you want to go up. So it, you can actually kind of see this if you look at the betting markets. If you look at uh, predict it, for example, on Biden and Trump, it has them definitely less than sixty forty. I think it's it's actually not even a very um, it's not a very efficient market because it's 44.59. So it adds up to 103%, 103%. But uh, let's just say it has Trump at 42% and Biden at 58%. So that's, yeah, that's about as extreme as you're going to want to be in this case. So um, yeah, that's very interesting. And, and I also think that be, it probably should be closer to 50-50, just in terms of my uh, notion of probability. Feel free to bet however you want. I feel like if you go through a hundred of these elections, a hundred of these one-off elections, and you bet on each one, and you always bet on the one that's cheaper, the one that's lower, uh, this far out, the two months out, you'd probably come out ahead in a hundred elections, but it'll take 400 years, so good luck with that. So, all right, does this mean that every election is 50-50? Uh, the answer is uh, certainly not, not every election, just... Um, uh, just in these one-off presidential elections where you have two cases that are very likely and you have many foreseeable possibilities of events that can switch it from one to the other. So it's very volatile. So for example, in my congressional district, I'm going to say that the odds are overwhelming that Carolyn Maloney, the, the Democrat, wins. She's won many elections in the past. Um, I'd maybe put it at 95%. I, you know, crazy things do happen, and congressional races are repeatable, so we do see occasionally crazy things happen. But um, probably not. But we can, probably not in this case. But we could test out, you know, what the actual probability of, of crazy things happening in these uh, safe seats are. Uh, and note also, in the presidential election, we don't put these third-party candidates on equal footing. Uh, so it's, it's more likely that a major, even if uh, you know, one of the major party candidates drops out before the election, which is more likely than a third-party candidate winning, uh, it's more likely that the major party would replace their candidate with someone else than a third party winning in the U.S., at least for this election. So um, you know, the probability of it happening sometime in the next 100 years is much higher because, again, on that time scale, you could have uh, electoral dynamics taking place that um, you know that uh, throw into question everything we know about U.S. politics. I mean, the two-party system, Republican and Democrat, is about uh, 160 years old. So, using Lindy's law, we could say maybe it lasts another 160 years. So, okay, uh, another 50 years is a good chance that um, that 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 it will be disrupted. So. At this election, for a third party winning, I put the odds at like less than one out of a thousand. It's, um, you know, the, the, the possibility of that happening is extremely low, but that's not what I'd put it at the election of 2048, for example. And, you know, that's not even what I'd put it at the election of 2024, the next one, because uh, so much can happen in the next four years. I mean, you could, you could probably think of cases where another party would be formed. It's not terribly likely, but it's way more likely than I think one in a thousand. So, all right. Presidential elections are sort of, they're, they're one-offs. 
We talked about this in episode 90 with a professor who claims to predict every election uh, until since like 1984. And again, that's not terribly, uh, well, there are a few problems with that. Uh, First of all, that's not a huge sample size. Some of these elections are a lot easier to predict than 50-50. So it's not like just getting eight uh, eight coin flips in a row, right? And you kind of want to look at, did they change their model over time? And, you know, did they hand wave, oh, the election of 2000, you know, was close enough that I don't really count my, my prediction for Gore. So, you know, there's all these exceptions. And so you, you see a lot of these clickbaity articles come out. I think that particular professor thought, you know, Trump was going to lose. Biden wasn't the nominee at the time. I've seen one on the Trump side, on the, on the Trump-averse, everyone trying to you know, play up Trump, saying, oh, this guy predicted the last 10 elections, and he says that Trump has a 90% chance of winning. Uh, I think it was based on, the, um, based on the turnout of the primary. And I just think that's crazy. I think that you can't do that. Obviously, someone's going to win, and so uh, in, in the end, but I, I feel that, again, a lot of this is clickbait, and a lot of this is you know, trying to get attention in this charged political environment. So that, uh, th- that professor who claims to predict the election nonsense, I talked about in episode 90. In episode 65, we talked about how you can predict unprecedented events, even though a presidential election is not entirely unprecedented. Uh, but uh, you could check that one out as well. So that's really all I want to say about the election. Oh, one more thing to say about the election prediction, just a little technical note is that these types of predictions that are updated over time and, um, and, and, and changing in time series like this, uh, it's called a martingale. And the reason, that's, that's kind of an interesting, interesting term. And the reason why it's called a martingale is because your possibilities of probability predictions for tomorrow, their weighted average is your probability prediction for today. So... Um, it's sort of uh, these martingales are kind of used to predict things like the uh, like like the, not predict the stock market. I wouldn't say predict the stock market, but to model the stock market, where uh, say the price of a stock today is the kind of the weighted sum of your of the of the community's uh, probabilities over what could be the prices tomorrow, and that kind of makes sense when you work your way backwards and try to price this thing. Um, and so there's, there's whole branches of calculus that are based on functions that kind of change over time, but they change probabilistically. Like usually when you talk about differential equations, it's deterministic. Like if I start here and I'm using this differential equation, it's going to, you know, it's going to uh, draft out this particular curve. But um, there's something called Edo calculus where, you know, there are probabilities in terms of where the curves is going to go. And so, you know, you can use, um, you could use some scheme to like rank curves in terms of which are more probable than others. It's something that I haven't done a whole lot of modeling on, but, uh, I would be very interested in trying that out. So, uh, again, we're going to get more concrete with the presidential elections in the future. I hope you learned something from that. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to have Alex Andorra back on to talk about, you know, what we get from polls Are our answers in the polls actually how people are going to vote. Um, are we very good? You know, it seems like there's a lot of questions about whether these polls are accurate or not. And so I want to ask them about like, you know, what can go wrong? And is there something that can go wrong this year that we can't otherwise go wrong? So I hope to learn a lot from that. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. One more thing. I know I keep saying one more thing. I have to come back to, I think it was the Huffington Post. And let me type this out. Huffington Post 
2016 election prediction, just to make sure. I think New York Times maybe too. Um, okay. Uh, I, I think it, they had Clinton at 98%. That's weird. I think some places had, it at, had her at 90%. And I think you could make the same argument, uh, a similar argument uh, that we made before as to why those are not competent predictions because, well, you look at Nate Silver's prediction, and even though he can be criticized for having all this variance that doesn't make any sense, let's say that 70% prediction at the end, there's a good, that's like, let's just say that's valid. Well, if I have a 90% prediction, uh, would I ask the person saying 90%, maybe don't ask them, hey, you you think uh, Trump is right that he can win? Don't ask them that. Say, hey, look, is there a possibility that that Nate Silver's 70% uh, prediction is is a is is a is a good accurate prediction or a good uh, like like a a competent valid prediction and then the person who predicted ninety percent might say yeah sure there's a, there's a chance that I'm wrong and Nate Silver is right well in that case they have to have a possibility that there's a much higher uh, you know model out there that is even more likely to be right like a ninety five percent model so that's why the kind of ninety percent model. Uh, argument didn't work in that environment. So I, hmm, I I hope I'm explaining this right. These are sort of, these are, these are very subtle arguments about probability, but uh, they're very cool to wrap your head around them. And once you do, you kind of understand what's going on in the world and you understand what people are trying to sell you in terms of predictive power. All right. So before we get to the rest of the podcast today, I want to talk about the podcast discovery show. There are 30 million podcasts available, and it is a daunting task to find new shows. But the Podcast Discovery Show talks about a new show, a new podcast on each episode, which makes discovering them easier and easier. Looking through some of their old episodes, you can use it to discover other tech podcasts like this one, or podcasts about science, or current events, or really anything. Um, and, and on the other discovery show on their feed, uh, they talk about all the other discoveries they make throughout the week, food, science, history, art, and they're always searching for new, incredible things to learn. Take finding your new favorite show into your own hands and engage in new and amazing shows from large shows to independent shows that uh, you would never be able to find. Hey, this show, uh, Local Maximum, is an independent show, so um, you, know, you must be into that. I, I look at some of the small, I have some small ones in my rotation, I have some big ones in rotation. Already the Podcast Discovery Show has discovered and discussed over 200 podcasts, and this number is only going to grow. Explore the world of podcasts with the Podcast Discovery Show, and remember, there is always more to discover. All right, now back to this podcast, the local maximum. All right, one month ago was the 25th anniversary of the launch of Windows 95, and I thought, I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this. I was like, well, you know, no one really cares. Why, was it, why is this such a big deal? Um, but, um, you know, it, it, back then, it was a big deal, and I think that talking about this shows the evolution of technology and the different phases that we've gone through of the different platforms so, you know, we don't make a huge deal of operating system launches anymore. I know that, you know, look, uh, I, iPhone, um, Apple launches iOS, a new iPhone uh, operating system every year. And yes, I, we kind of have to pay attention to it in Foursquare because whatever they do, uh, you know, we might have to update our Foursquare apps. But everyone's like, 
you know, oh, cool, I can, uh, there's a new swipey feature now or something like that. So that, that wasn't there before, or, new, or night mode or something like that. But it's not, it's not a big deal. And also, you know, they don't have to drum up excitement for everyone to go out and buy it. Every, it kind of automatically goes in everybody's phone. Uh, Windows, Windows doesn't even come out anymore. I mean, there's Windows 10, and now they're saying, well, we're just going to keep updating Windows 10, and we're not going to have these big launches anymore like we used to. So uh, there are a couple articles on this that I wanted to... Um, fit in and talk about, and, and I want to talk about like my experiences. So this is from Anil Dash on his podcast. He's a pretty good, he's an interesting technology commentator. He says, for context, when Windows 95 was released in, the August of, in August of 1995, only about 30% of American homes had any computer at all. Less than 10% had any form of internet access, and virtually none had broadband. I know I didn't. There were no smartphones, of course. But more broadly, computers and software were basically not yet something one talked about in polite companies. You might have a friend who, quote, worked in computers. We didn't say work in tech yet. Or call IT for support when your printer, uh, for your printer at work. <laughs> I mean, to 2020, you still have to call IT for your printer at work. Uh, but software was not part of culture, and the term apps wouldn't come into wide usage for more than another decade. In those days, most job listings didn't even yet ask for familiarity with Microsoft Office. Ask your parents what that meant. Yeah, you know, familiarity with Excel, things like that. And um, the PlayStation hadn't been released yet in the U.S. or Europe. So, in other words, like, when Windows 95 came out, they marketed this thing like a movie, like some of these like really splashy commercials that you, you wouldn't see now for an operating system, kind of like a, a summer blockbuster, something that everyone should be excited to use. You know, hey, look, um, you could use the, you know, all, look at all this software that's coming out for kids, all these games, all these, um, all, you know, all these productivity tools, things like that. And so um, Anil Dash argues that while uh, ultimately argues for uh, about the uh, the legacy of Windows 95. He argues that while it was a successful product and a great operating system, uh, it was really the cultural perception that marked the big change. It was like, oh, everybody should be involved in this. Everybody should uh, everybody should uh, look in window, look into Windows 95, just like everybody should check out the summer blockbuster movie. So I remember even back then, you know, people would ask, hey, did you get it yet? Did you get Windows 95? Did you try Windows 95? Uh, you know, did you have Windows 95? Is it really that good? Is it really as good as they say? And so it was always in comparison with Windows 3.1. So that's the kind of the first one that I remember where it was really, it was DOS. It was really the command line. You were always focused on the command line and... It was like, ah, today maybe I'll start up Windows. So you type in Windows, and then you, know, you wait five, ten minutes, and Windows comes on, and then you can click around and do a few things. But Windows was just one program of many. Now it is front and center the main thing. So we don't, again, we don't talk about operating systems like that right now. Another great article that I'm going to link on localmaxradio.com slash 136 is from Jenny List on Hack Day, who did a technical evaluation of Windows 95. Some very interesting things. After 25, also she, she makes the point that after 25 years, maybe we could be a little bit more unbiased about what was going on. Interestingly, like some interface elements survive today to today. For example, the, the start menu and, you know, the start menu even has kind of analogs on the Macs, Mac and Linux operating systems to an extent. So a, a lot of the things they introduced are, are still around, which is 
very impressive that the design elements stay for 25 years. Uh, we don't even think about it anymore. We're like, you know, fish noticing water or something. So what did people get out of this operating system that they didn't get out of it before? My impression was that first, it introduced PC users, essentially non-Mac users, to the graphical interface as the primary way of interacting with the machine as opposed to the command line. Obviously, this was being done by the Mac uh, before that. It was done by the Macintosh. But I think this was probably marks the flipping point in the public imagination. And you, know, some people, Apple fans, would say, hey, they kind of ripped off Apple a little bit. Maybe that's true. But they kind of took it to the masses. And I, I think Apple came back in the next decade and, 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 and with a roar and really, really dominated this stuff later. So I also think that the basic layout, look, feel, and interface has stuck for 25 years, which is very, very impressive, as I said. Even when they tried to radically change things for Windows 8, they were like, hey, it's been, I don't know when Windows 8 came out five years ago, it's been 20 years, maybe it's time that we radically change the interface uh, because, you know, what's the chance that the interface we designed 20 years ago is still, obviously with some changes, but is still uh, the most optimal way of doing it today. So let's, let's think about this from scratch. And so they launched Windows 8. And I don't think that was a bad operating system. Some people say, you know, people hate Windows Vista. Windows 8, I don't think it was bad, but there was kind of a, a backlash to that because, you know, people liked the way things were and people were used to the way things were. And so things kind of returned to form in Windows 10. I think there's a very deep cultural momentum now on operating system interfaces and it's you know it's like language it's like it's like it has to gradually change but uh, people can't just decide okay we're going to change all the rules uh, so when you start something new like this <laughs> you know a lot of the decisions you make early on kind of get get stuck um, another interesting point is that the launch of the first iPhone was 12 years later and with the launch of the iPhone they were able to kind of radically rethink the interface because it was entirely new form factor. So we're kind of about halfway between uh, or the iPhone, tw I, the iPhone launch is about halfway between the launch of Windows 95 and today. So maybe we're due for another user interface revolution, whether it's voice or glasses. Some have said back to text, you know, <laughs> back to command line, you know, now you're, you're, you're texting to machines for, with bots. Uh, but um, I don't know, it's a very interesting thing to think about. I'm pretty sure that, um, We'll see, well, people have tried to build other platforms, but, but um, it's not just about trying to build it or marketing it or have people use it. It's really about what Windows 95 did and what the iPhone did, which was really in the public imagination and sort of in the public, um, public habits get them used to using this form of computer-human interaction. So that's my take on that. If you have anything to weigh in or your story about it, uh, go to localmaxradio.com, uh, well, or go to uh, localmax, or email me at localmaxradio at gmail.com if you'd like to weigh in. Uh, finally, another anniversary that I want to talk about is the anniversary of 9-11. And, you know, I haven't, I've been doing this show for three years, and I don't think I've mentioned other anniversaries for 9-11. It, it seems kind of strange to talk about it on the 19-year anniversary instead of 20, but uh, you know, on the day last week, I was down at the memorial or, or ground zero, as we used to call it on 9-11 and the weeks after, as I usually do. But there were more people down there than ever, even during with the with the pandemic. And um, sometimes I went and there, there really weren't a lot of people some years. 
Um, I think that people really want something that they can rally behind. I, you know, why is it so much more difficult to rally be- around each other and support each other uh, during a pandemic than it is during a terrorist attack? And I, you know, my thought, I was thinking about this and some people think, oh, it's just the times people hate each other now and that wasn't true then. And okay, maybe that's true to an extent, but I also think it has to do with the nature of the threat. I think that you know, when 9-11 happened, everybody was going through the same thing. Everybody was upset. And really, it was like you were, you, if something happened, you relied on the people around you to, uh, to, to save you from that threat. Or, or you, know, to, you, you kind of band together and, and, and work together uh, to, um, you know, well, in, in those situations, you, know, you heard about the people on the, the Flight 93 who took down the plane or you hear stories of firemen going into the buildings in 9-11 and, and, and getting people out, and in some cases is uh, perishing as they did do that. So um, I, I feel like there's, there's got to be a sense of community in, in that sort of thing. But man, this pandemic, uh, as there has been in other you know, disasters in, in New York, you know, certainly Hurricane Sandy and things like that, people helped each other. This one is different. I feel like the, in the pandemic, it's like, where's the threat coming from? It's people feel like the threat is coming from the other people around them. And so that really changes the social dynamic among people, which is, is really sad. And, um, I don't know, hopefully we can, hopefully we can, uh, undo that, uh, as time goes on. I think there's some very promising numbers from the pandemic right now, uh, that things are coming to an end, uh, but, uh, but we'll see. All right. So, a couple of interesting shows coming up. As I said, next month I'm going to talk to Alex Andorra. I have a call-in show coming soon. Oh, this is a new thing that I'm doing that's interesting. I'm going to do call-in shows where if you want to call into the Local Maximum, let me know, localmaxradio at gmail.com. And it's very simple. Just uh, tell me a thought about something that you had, and then I'll talk to you about it for two, five, ten minutes. Very simple conversation. Uh, very easy to, and you know, this way I don't have to, book uh book you as a guest it would just be like a very quick conversation you could you could promote something too if you want and then um and then and then i'll ask you some questions about it and then i'll put it together into a call and show so it's a brand new format that i want uh to allow community involvement here on the local maximum i have my first call and show coming soon i'm not sure if i'll do it next week or the week after depending if i get another caller but uh already have some calls done and um i'm looking forward to experimenting with this new format I know we've had a stretch without guests, but we have a pretty great lineup for October. I think I've got a topologist coming on to talk more about topology. I'm looking forward to that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.